Let this episode begin like a creepy Netflix true crime series. In 1988, a group of innocent, happy-go-lucky schoolchildren from Doncaster began feeling ill. They were sick, they had stomach cramps, they cried for mercy. In their pain and terror, they were forced to admit that they had done something very wrong. Okay, we'll lose the Netflix tone there, but yes, a group of kids did indeed fall ill at Adwick Comprehensive School in Doncaster in 1988 and were forced to confess that they had broken into a warehouse where they had found stacks of sweets and biscuits and yeah, they went nuts and had a right old feast. It must have seemed like Willy Wonka's factory in there. Sweets and biscuits piled high. Of course, this was no chocolate factory. It was a government buffer depot. A warehouse used to store stockpiled foods in case of nuclear war. A stockpile with which we might feed the population once the supermarkets had been either bombed or stripped bare. The sweets and biscuits that the kids had been gorging on were, let's say, a little bit past their sell-by date. The sweets were from the 1960s, and some of the biscuits dated back to 1943. So yeah, they were sick. That'll teach them. So today we look at these buffer depots, what they contained, what they were for, and how their dodgy biscuits were supposed to save us. Kids receive stomach upsets because the sweets and biscuits were badly off. There were hundreds of these depots across the country, storing flours and fats, yeast, oils and butter. And they used to hold a lot, a lot of tinned corned beef. All quite standard, boring, essential foodstuffs. So why were nice things like sweets and biscuits involved? It wasn't because the government wanted us to have a nice sweet treat after the Holocaust. It was purely for the sugar hit. Boiled sweets and biscuits are going to deliver sugar and carbohydrate and therefore energy. And yes, of course, the surviving population will need energy if they're to perform the dreadful 
labour the authorities had planned for us after the war. Food, your rotting tins of corned beef and your biscuits would be the new currency. No one wants or needs wages anymore for the labour. Not now, money is useless. Food is the thing. Food has value. Gorgeous, luscious, tasty value. It's almost like we are reduced to the status of pet dogs after nuclear war. Sit up, up you get. Come on, work, work. Good boy, here's a biscuit. As for the boiled sweets the British government held in stockpile, I've found details in the archives about that and how there were concerns about dishing out boiled sweets because wouldn't the continual sucking of hard-boiled sweets cause mouth sores? The Americans had already realised that and uh, a lot of their fallout shelters contained not boiled sweets but sugar cubes. Gives you the same sugar hit and energy but it dissolves warmly on the tongue. Now, the massive food stocks had to be regularly checked because, naturally, food goes off. As the wee kids in Doncaster found out, you couldn't just pile it into these buffer depots and then wander off. Periodically, the stuff would be turned over and replaced with fresh supplies. After all, the nuclear war might come tomorrow. Or in five years. Or never. So they had to keep the food stockpile constantly fresh and ready. Well, that was the plan. Every few years, samples would be taken from the buffer depots and subject to food safety checks by the government chemist. During these checks, it was often found that the biscuits, although safe to eat, had developed a horrible pale powdery coating. When this happened, the biscuits would be removed and sold on to dog food manufacturers. They also had to check, of course, for things like rat and mice droppings in the flour. But the biggest trouble came from the massive stockpile of tinned corned beef. And that's because in the days before tightened food standards and health and safety, our tinned corned beef was enclosed with a lead seal. And over the years, the meat would start to absorb some of that lead. It wasn't a problem as long as the tins just sat on a shelf or in a cupboard for a few months, but over the long term, lead would start to sneakily transfer into the meat. So they had to go, and new supplies brought in. So it was a constant process. Old stuff chucked out, new stuff brought in. Just in case. Just in case. Now these big buffer depots, they weren't secret. They were run by private companies on behalf of the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. And we can trace most of them back to the war when the same principle applied. Of course, during the war, we needed far more of them. And you would sometimes find them in strange places. They weren't necessarily in big warehouses or on industrial estates. But, for example, there was one during the war in a theatre in the town of Minehead in Devon. The Queen's Hall Theatre, when entertainment was restricted during the war, 
was turned into a buffer depot and the theatre was piled from floor to ceiling with stockpiled tea. Essential stuff, obviously. £50,000 worth of tea stacked and shoved into Minehead's theatre. And indeed, tea was considered so important, so essential to the morale and the well-being of the British population that, yes, during the Cold War, we actually had dedicated tea officers and also tea procurement officers out in India and Ceylon. This is from 1971. And the document I have here about the tea officers, which was sent to me by my friend Mike Kenner, who knows everything about this topic, uh, the document says, quote, Our food scientists have consistently contended that tea is of very considerable importance as a sustainer of morale in GB, Great Britain. After nuclear war, how do you get your stockpiled boiled sweets, biscuits and flour across the country? Even if by some miracle your buffer depot has survived attack and it happened to be nicely and liberally topped up with safe, edible, yummy stuff, how do you distribute it to the hungry survivors? We can assume, of course, that many roads and bridges will be impassable. Do we need to go back to the old ways and pile the stuff onto a barge and make our way slowly along the rivers and canals? Anyone who's seen the TV series Survivors from the 70s will um, know that there's a scene after the apocalyptic events. Uh, it's a plague, if I remember correctly, a plague which wipes out most of the country. There is a scene where a barge is being dragged along a canal by a horse. The horse, of course, is walking on the canal path and he's towing the canal behind him on a rope. So that would be one option. But of course, depending on the severity of the attack and where the bombs fall, maybe lots of our roads will still be clear. But perhaps not those into the major cities, of course. But then, why are you trying to get food into the major cities? Is there anyone there? Anyone who is deemed worthy of the reward of food? You need to take the food where it's needed. And that is to survivors who are fit and able to work. And if it is a massive nuclear attack, I think we can assume that those people will not be found in major target areas. Those boiled sweets will be going elsewhere. So when your stockpiled food arrives, when your barge loaded with biscuits bumps along the canal and into town, what then? How do you dish it out to the survivors? How do you make sure it's going to the right people in the right quantities? I've read a fictional scenario which was horrible and always sticks in my mind, even though I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's true, but let's, let's entertain it. It's from the young adult novel Brother in the Land. And in the novel we see survivors, I think they're being told to queue for soup. And the elderly and infirm are being made to queue separately. And the assumption, of course, is that, okay, they're being given an extra ration or something because they're poorly. But if I remember correctly, they're being told to queue separately because their food has been poisoned. And they're instantly 
you've disposed of the people who can't work and who, in this terrible new world, are seen as nothing but a burden. A useless mouth. That's a novel, of course. In reality, there were rumours that Britain would reintroduce ration cards, a return to the system which had worked nicely during the war. Of course, plenty of people moaned about it, and a black market sprung up, but the fact is that no one starved in Britain during the war. On the contrary, the war years were, the, I believe, the healthiest diet <laughs> that modern British people have ever had. Dig for Victory produced loads of vegetables, and there was no junk food or indulgence. But the authorities were always very reluctant to admit they were considering rationing again if nuclear war came. In 1986, The Guardian and The Observer reported that they'd seen secret documents about a ration card scheme for post-nuclear Britain. The Guardian said that the Ministry of Agriculture had printed 56 million ration cards, which were being stockpiled at secret locations and would be issued when war drew close. You would collect them at your local polling station where, just like in an election, they would check your name on the electoral roll. I've also read in the book London Under Attack that when it comes to food rationing and food shortages, and I think we saw a bit of this during the recent COVID, of the current COVID crisis, the worst thing that can happen if you want the if you want to avoid panic buying, the worst thing that can happen is for supermarket shelves to be empty or to look sparse because there is nothing more guaranteed to make people panic and grab what is left. So there is a, a school of thought which says, um, even in the run-up to nuclear war, if you can, if it's at all possible, please keep those supermarket shelves full because that will keep people calm and that will reassure people. Perhaps it's unfair to keep them calm and reassure them when a nuclear holocaust is about to break, but in terms of <laughs> avoiding panic buying, try to keep those shelves looking full. And we'll end with something um, which I thought was quite funny. Um, in 1997, when the new Labour government came in, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling instigated a kind of survey of all the assets held by each government department what does each department hold and what is surplus? What can we get rid of? What can we sell? Apparently one government department owns the car park of Ipswich Town Football Club. So everyone assessed what they held, what was surplus and what could be sold on. And the Ministry of Agriculture, who we've been discussing in this episode, they said they had 18 buffer depots. So of course, after the end of the Cold War, a lot of them were closed, stood down, emptied. 18 remained in the ownership of the Ministry of Agriculture and all of them were put up for sale. And the Ministry of Agriculture also listed on the National Asset Register 28 rabies vans and one rabies crew bus. The Department of Trade and Industry uh, had something far nicer. They had a cutting, a directed descendant of Isaac Newton's apple tree, which was taken from a cutting found in Isaac Newton's mum's garden. So that was a strange um, thing to lodge on the National Asset Register, Isaac Newton's apple tree. 
Now, I hope you'll let me do a bit of um, Patreon admin here. I've had lots of new patrons join, which I'm so, so glad about. Thank you, everyone who supports my podcast. And this week, Jonathan Harden has signed up to my Patreon. Thank you, Jonathan. As has Andrea Hanna and Bill Darris and Sarah Burke. And uh, Erika, one of my long-standing patrons, has increased her uh, monthly donation, so thank you, Erika. And this influx of um, lovely new patrons prompted me to look, do a bit of Patreon admin, and I see I've got 10 people, 10 patrons who are still waiting for their Patreon rewards to be sent out. Uh, Chris Sunman and Anna Brotherton, I believe, have been waiting the longest. So please be assured I am getting your gifts made up for you now. Anna and Chris are receiving... um, a personalised copper bookmark, which gets engraved with their name. And the engraver also puts uh, lots of wee nuclear symbols on it for me and attaches an orange tassel. I chose orange because that seems to be the, the colour of the podcast, the colour of the logo, etc. And also, if one of your rewards is access to the Atomic Hobos group on Facebook, where I share details of my research and some photographs of archive papers, etc., please uh, send me a Facebook request to join the group. Because Facebook have changed it so that if you run a group, you can no longer send out invites unless those people are your friends. So you will have to request an invite from me. So just go to Facebook, search for Atomic Hobos, which is a private group, and just press uh, join and I will then approve you. I can no longer send out invites, which is a, a big nuisance. So thank you all my new patrons. And let me also give a shout out to the following. William Brennan, Henry Lobb, Saul Sheldon, Vicky Hamlin, Samuel Brown, and Tracy McRobert. I'm very glad we're all listening and learning about nuclear horror together. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website, juliemcdowell.com. And I'll be back next week with another episode.